0: is Jamie. I get the privilege most weeks of opening up the scriptures with the church as we gather in this place, and we'll certainly get to that in just a moment. Uh, if this is your first Sunday, we're currently working through the book of Acts. We Um, oftentimes work through books of the Bible together. We certainly have our moments where we have topical series where we'll dive into things that uh, we're not able to get to because we're working through books of the Bible, but it just so happens in this moment, by God's providence, that we are in the book of Acts together as a church It's one of the great thrill rides of scripture. If you've never read the book of Acts, it's fantastic. It's a story, as you've heard me say from the beginning of this series, of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the extraordinary spirit of God turning the world upside down for the glory of Jesus Christ. That's your thesis statement for the book of Acts It's a band of Christ followers acting as Jesus' witnesses, spreading the gospel by land and sea to the farthest reaches of the known world, fulfilling the the very promise of Jesus Christ himself to build his church with the gates of hell powerless to to stop it, to stand against it. If you've been around from the very beginning, this dawned on me even this week as I was preparing for this morning's message. If you've been around from the very beginning, by the time you leave this place this morning, uh, we will have worked our way through half of this book of the Bible. You will have covered half of this book of the Bible just by being a part of this church. How cool is that? Um, If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 14. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. Feel free to grab one of those Bibles. Use it uh, as we dive in this morning. Take it with you if you don't own a Bible or the translation that you have is difficult to track with. As you're opening up to this morning's passage, as a word of good news for some of you who have come to me and asked me about this, I've had a handful of people who have asked, is there any way to get the sermon quotes uploaded to the website or something so that I can grab hold of that? You you blaze a trail through these quotes so quickly that uh, you know I, I struggle to even pull my phone up fast enough to get a shot of it, though I see some of you doing that at times. And so... Uh, the answer is yes. As of this morning's sermon, when you go online, uh, once we upload that, you should see an attached PDF of all of the slides associated with this sermon, we're going to start doing that. And that's a good thing, because I'm, there, there are a couple of moments this morning that I am going to blaze through some slides, and you're going to be like, oh, blimey. And then I'm going to say, but I told you it's going to be on the website, and you're going to be cool with it. <laughs> let, me, let me pray for us, and we'll, we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. God, thank you for your word, your revelation of yourself without which we would be left to nothing more than our own speculation as to what God is like. You have revealed yourself to us truly, though we cannot know you exhaustively, we can know you as you have revealed yourself to us in scripture. And so I pray this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was at work in the early church as we see in the book of Acts, Holy Spirit, would you move, would you... Would you stir in our midst? Would you give us eyes? Help us to see that which you want us to see. Help our hearts to to have a feeling sense of that which you want us to have a feeling sense with regard to. Mobilize us as we leave this place for your glory, for our own joy and good. Spirit of God, without you moving in power in these moments to come, this is a, a futile effort as we Open the scriptures together. We're desperate for you, Holy Spirit. So would you move mightily in these moments that we have together this morning? In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Let me just... Let me just preface this morning's time in the scriptures by setting the expectation that I'm not going to do what I have been known to do from time to time around here, which is to provide a list of application points toward the end of our time in the scriptures. I'm not going to do that this morning, rather in an effort to all the more see the, the beauty of the unfolding narrative uh, as it stands in Acts chapter 14. I'm going to point to those points of application as we go. And what that means is that you're going to need to pay c- close attention to the things that God reveals to you, the way that he stirs your hearts, because those points of application are not going to be packaged in a nice, neat sort of bundle as we get to the end of, of Acts 14 this morning. But I really do believe in in coming after this chapter this way that we will all the more see the beauty of the unfolding story for what it is, having our hearts and minds all the more awakened to God's goodness, glory, and grace. As I've mentioned on a number of occasions throughout this series, Luke goes to, to great lengths to show us that nothing can stop the gospel from spreading, that there is no threat to the church, there is no obstacle to growth that the Spirit of God cannot overcome, and that includes persecution, division, distraction, hypocrisy, even martyrdom. Jesus had said to his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, which is exactly what we see unfold in the book of Acts. Chapters one through seven tell the story of the gospel spreading in the city of Jerusalem. Chapters eight through 12 tell the story of the gospel spreading in all Judea and Samaria. And chapters 13 and beyond as we sit in that part of the story right now, this very morning, tell the story of the gospel spreading to the end of the earth, the famous missionary journeys of the apostle Paul. Coming back to a graphic from last week that I put up on the screen, a map of Paul's first missionary journey. Perhaps you've seen that in the back of your Bible at some point along the way. You can kind of see and trace uh, the, the stages of this journey. We we basically made it up to the, the very top, northernmost point of the Blue Arrows, and that's where uh, we begin this morning moving east through Iconium down to Lustra and into Derby. Uh, we, we embarked on the first half of this journey last week, and so this is kind of a, a part two, uh, you might say. You maybe watched a, a Netflix you know, TV show, and it, it has those terrible words at the end, to be continued, and you're like, no. But then you're like, wait a minute, I don't have to wait seven days because it's Netflix. Yes. And then you, you just dive right into it, right? Well, we can't do that. We'd be here all day if we last week tried to get after this entire journey. And so we did have a to be continued, but now we're diving back in. Paul and Barnabas, they they preach the gospel everywhere they go. They declare the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, everywhere they go. They see many come to faith. They see the gospel planted. They see churches birthed. They experience a gamut of sorrows in the midst of the hatred and hostility of these unbelieving crowds, yet a fullness of, of joy, a fullness of the Holy Spirit that comes in living a life of allegiance to Jesus Picking up where we left off last week, Acts chapter 14, verse 1, it says, now in, at Iconium, let me just stop there. Iconium was a, a very old, heavily Greek city, resistant to Roman authority, governed by a group of its own citizens, one of the cities along with the, the ones that will follow suit in chapter 14 that Paul had in mind when he wrote to the churches in Galatia. So if you read the book of Galatians, you can kind of connect the dots and go, oh, Paul was writing to these guys in Acts 14, and you kind of see what what he might have said later on, speaking back into some of the things that he was seeking to say, even here in this moment as the gospel is planted in these places. Iconium tells us they entered there together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And so Paul and Barnabas, they continue their established pattern of of entering into the synagogues first, the Jewish synagogues, reasoning from the Old Testament that Jesus is the messianic fulfillment of the scriptures, indicating the priority of the Jewish people in redemptive history as God's chosen people, and then turning to the Gentiles when Jewish opposition drove them out of the synagogue. In this particular city, we're told that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believe, but, verse 2 the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There's, there's another pattern that, that's emerging in the book of Acts. We'll see it over and over again. One of hostility and hatred on the part of the unbelieving Jews, who in this case seek to poison the minds of the Gentiles against Jesus' followers and ultimately against Paul and Barnabas and their missionary team. And so we're told in verse three, they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas see this effort to poison the minds of the Gentiles, so they remain. What a bunch of gunslingers, right? They remain for a long time. Evidence of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of hostility, in the midst of persecution which leads to this bold proclamation of the gospel along with the accompanying signs and wonders that confirm the truth of their very message. Verse four tells us, but the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews, some sided with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding area. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Paul and Barnabas are in the crosshairs of, of martyrdom, and we'll see it get worse by the end of chapter 14. And so, in wisdom, they, they move on to the next town. Sometimes, uh, an advancement of the gospel requires staying. Sometimes, the advancement of the gospel requires going, which is why we're so desperate for the direction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In this case, they leave so they can do the very thing that they've been opposed for doing, which is to preach Jesus some more. At this point, they've, they've been chased out of back-to-back cities, but they're unwavering. They're they're committed to preaching the gospel. They're they're not just preaching grace, you might say, but rather they're relying upon the very grace that they're preaching. It's kind of amazing. Verse 8 tells us, now at there there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, had never walked. But listening to Paul speaking or excuse me, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Lustra, according to many scholars, was kind of a, the best way I've heard it described is kind of a wild west town. It made up predominantly of uneducated Gentiles. There was no Jewish synagogue in the city People by and large worship the Greek gods as we'll see in just a moment. Here we see this this healing that's very similar to what we saw back in Acts chapter three. You remember where Peter standing outside the Jerusalem temple heals a man who was crippled from birth. It's almost as if God's saying, I can display my power and grace in an epicenter of religiosity and I can do it in an epicenter of paganism just as well. No sort of corrective surgery No no need for physical therapy here. Instantaneously able to spring up and walk. A walking miracle, literally. We talked about this back in Acts chapter three. The prophet Isaiah, in describing what the coming Messiah would accomplish, says Isaiah 35, verses five and six. Then, when Jesus comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Right, this healing has Jesus written all over it. This man should be shouting undignified hallelujahs to the one true God along with everyone looking in on the scene here. But that's not what we're told happens. Look at verse 11. It says, and when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. The people here, they try to make sense of what's just happened through the the lens of their polytheistic, their multi-god worldview. And so they assume that the gods must have come to the neighborhood According to legend in the town of Lustra that that particular community had been visited before by Zeus and Hermes, who had disguised themselves as human beings seeking lodging and practically the entire city rejected them with the exception of a poor elderly couple who decided to take them in. And as the legend goes, as an expression of gratitude, their tiny little cottage was transformed into a temple and they were made priest and priestess of that temple and they were even allowed years later to die on the same day so that they wouldn't have to bury one another in the kindness of the gods. Meanwhile, those who, who had rejected the gods, their homes were destroyed. You can just... With that kind of legend as part of your, your community's story, you can just see them going, we're not gonna get this wrong again. Like, this looks like the gods at work. Must be, we're gonna attribute glory to them. What a crazy, crazy experience this must have been like for Paul and Barnabas. Right, demonized in the last two cities, deified in the city of Lustra. Going back to chapter 12, Herod the, the fame junkie that he was, man, he would have loved this town, wouldn't he? But Paul and Barnabas are, are having none of it. They're having none of it. We're told in verse 14, when the apostles, Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, They tear their garments in distress in protest, similar to what we see Peter do back in chapter 10 when Cornelius falls at his feet in worship. Like, what are you doing? We're human beings, just like you. 10 fingers, 10 toes, nothing to worship here. And then they leverage that. They proceed to point them to the one who truly is worthy of worship, the living God. Look at midway through verse 15. Paul and Barnabas say, and we bring you good news we get our word gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. See the brilliance of of Paul and his missionary team here with their Jewish audiences. They were accustomed to to walking through Old Testament history and showing how all of the the people, the events, the offices, the institutions, all pointed to Jesus ultimately as the promised Messiah. But, But this pagan crowd has no foundational understanding of the Old Testament, many of them altogether illiterate. And so Paul and Barnabas take a step back and they begin their presentation of the gospel with the doctrine of creation, my guess would be that that is probably the same starting place that, that many of you parents in the rooms, uh, in the room have embraced with your own children. Need I bring us back to that old battle-tested illustration from the Hebrews series? Look, Daddy, it's the moon, it's the moon. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Isaiah 6.3 When Isaiah saw the throne of heaven, saw the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. As Andrew Davis says in his publication on the doctrine of creation for the Gospel Coalition, he says, as God created the universe, he poured his glory into every atom and complex system, whether in the cosmos or in the ecosphere, The creation is not waiting to display the glory of God. It already does. Creation is is declaring the glory of God in a universal language, revealing his existence and nature plainly to all. That's what Paul talks about when when he says in Romans 1, verse 20, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that he has made. The fingerprint of God is everywhere. We can't escape it. Coming back to Andrew Davis, let me just share a few more snippets from that publication on creation. He says this regarding the sun. He says, the sun is an astonishing creation, a raging inferno of power that in some ways displays God's transcendent to an arrogant human race. There is nothing humanity can do to the sun, good or bad, We cannot make it brighter or dimmer, larger or smaller, nearer or farther, hotter or cooler. If we decided as a human race that we wanted to destroy the sun, he says, there would be nothing we could do to it. If we amassed all our thermonuclear weapons and sent them as intergalactic rockets to explode on the surface of the sun, they would never make it, but would be incinerated millions of miles away from their destination." NASA, he says, is presently planning a solar probe mission that will be able to get only within 3.5 million miles of the surface. The sun burns on day after day without any visible diminution of its power, so bright we cannot look at it steadily without being blinded. No one in human history has ever won a staring contest with the sun. He goes on to say, The sun glorifies God by its astonishing power and brightness, and yet, listen to this, and yet the sun was designed with human beings in mind, shining in the sky, and here he quotes Genesis 1.17, to give light on the earth. Notice the the bridge from creation to providence. The sun is not only a display of God's glory, it's a declaration of his goodness and grace toward his very image bearers. Giving light to the earth. He says elsewhere, Davis does speaking on plant life. He says, Who can fail to notice the majestic variety of the vegetation on the earth? God spoke forth mighty redwoods, frail ferns, fragrant orchids, and spectacular wildflowers. Guys, now you're going to have to buy your lady something on Valentine's Day. I'm real sorry. God wove every living and growing thing with which he beautified the the dry land into a complex biological system of plant life that would take nutrients from the soil, carbon dioxide from the air, and energy from the sun to live and grow and provide food for the animals and humans that would come later. That like the sun, plant life is not just about God's glory, but also about his goodness and grace toward the things that he's created, namely animals and people providing food for us. Davis is, he's clearly taking his cues from Paul and Barnabas. It's exactly what we see them doing here in Acts chapter 14. You should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. There's creation, the glory of God. But he follows that with, he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That God didn't just create all this as a declaration of his glory, but also his goodness, also his grace. Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the one true creator God to this crowd of polytheistic worshipers, a God who has revealed himself in the common graces of rain from heaven, fruitful seasons, the satisfying of of their very hearts, food with, with gladness, none of which they deserve, by the way. Right as they attributed it all to a pantheon of so-called gods who are no gods. God owes nothing to sinners but death, and yet he bestows innumerable blessings upon Christian and non-Christian alike. It's, It's amazing. What grace, let me say it this way, what grace that God would allow to use the language of Ephesians 2, that God would allow children of wrath to feel the warmth of the sun, that God would allow children of wrath to know the blessing of a rainstorm. That God would allow children of wrath to experience their taste buds awakened and satisfied by good food and drink. That God would allow children of wrath to know something of the wonder of laughter. Some would take a passage like this and and would use it to argue that coming to an awareness of these things, of, of God and his common graces through creation is sufficient for, for salvation. That it doesn't matter if you, if you ever actually get to Jesus. Peter, we've seen, declare otherwise to the religious leaders going back to Acts chapter 4, where we're told that um, th- this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, Peter says, the builders, which has become the cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name, Peter says, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter's only taking his cues from Jesus. It was out of Jesus's own mouth as he declared to Thomas, John chapter 14, verse six, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Jesus himself declared that there's only one path to the top of the mountain and it's a path that he paved with his very own blood. John Stott in his commentary on Acts 14 says, wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. Like we know if you read ahead to verses 21 and 22, we know the disciples were made in this city, but we're not told how Paul and Barnabas transitioned from the, the God of creation and common grace to the gospel. It's really, it's really fascinating. Right? In this particular episode, we're not given all the details. We're left to speculate as to how these men transitioned to the good news of Jesus Christ, which I think presents us with a question. How would you make sense of the gospel for this crowd? In light of what you've seen Paul say thus far. Really good exercise in evaluating our own understanding of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Really good exercise in, in seeing whether we have the ability to point people to Jesus. Are we equipped? Have we been equipped for mobilization? Kind of dream here. As you look at Acts chapter 14, what did they say? Maybe Paul and Barnabas brought up the legend of Zeus and Hermes disguising themselves as men and leveraged that to point them to the true king of heaven who clothed himself in flesh and became a man so that he might die on behalf of undeserving sinners. Maybe they drew everyone's attention to the priest of Zeus standing off to the side with the sacrifices of oxen and garland and said, let me tell you about a better priest who sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and intercedes for and pleads on behalf of his people who entered into the true temple of heaven. Let me point you to a better sacrifice in Jesus Christ whose blood is greater than the blood of those oxen that you're looking to sacrifice on our behalf. He's the lamb of God without blemish who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe they pointed to the temple of Zeus off in the distance and said, let me tell you about what happened to our temple in Jerusalem on the day Jesus died when the curtain was torn because it was a visible declaration in Jesus' death that he's the way back into the presence of God. The list is endless in the ways that they could have creatively connected the dots to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we know the gospel story? Are we prepared wherever we begin in conversations with people to end with Jesus Christ? He's the good news. He's the hope of salvation. question came to my mind this week. What do you think Paul and Barnabas would say if they made their way through our region? They made their their way through the South Metro Atlanta area, through Peachtree City, the surrounding areas. What do you think they'd say? We we know they'd ultimately point us to Jesus, but how would they get us to Jesus? How how might they adapt their presentation of the unchanging message of the gospel in our context? Perhaps they'd address the functional moralists in the crowd. And maybe there's some here this very morning Those who would would never say it, they would never confess to be moralists, but functionally believe deep down that God really does love the good guys. Those clawing after God's approval through the the checking of religious boxes, through the busyness of religious activity. Those living in the two extremes of pride and despair, pride in seasons of self-wrought righteousness and despair in seasons of failure to perform. Like you can just hear Paul saying, Man, I know what it's like to exhaust yourself in the pursuit of God's approval. I know what it's like to look down your nose at others in pride and at the same time feel this deep insecurity and despair of feeling like you're never good enough. I know what that's like. And, and, and I can tell you that you don't have to live that way. Like it's one thing to have heard of Jesus, as many have in your context. This is me talking as the Apostle Paul, perhaps even profess to believe in him, it's an altogether different thing to truly give up on yourself going back to last week. To acknowledge that it's not about what you do or don't do, but it's about what Jesus has done. To acknowledge that he lived the perfect righteous life that you and I can never live. To embrace the truth that you're so sinful that Jesus had to die for you which is a death blow to your pride, and yet you're so loved that he was glad to die for you, which is a death blow to your despair. You can just hear Paul saying, if you're one of the many who profess Christianity, as many do in your context, yet have never truly been brought out of the darkness of functional moralism, turn from that darkness this day and step into the freeing light of Jesus Christ. Maybe they'd address the functional deists in the crowd, deists being those who believe that God created the world wound up the clock of human history and then checked out on his creation, leaving it up to us to figure it all out. Functional deists being those who are happy with the idea that there is a God because it means that there's some sort of meaning in the world at least, and it means that something good is to come in the afterlife as opposed to nothing, but who want nothing to do with God in this life, preferring to live for themselves in the present, acting as their own sovereign king. That you can just hear Paul saying, you can't have it both ways. You can't have the kingdom of God and the kingdom of self. It doesn't work that way. That which you're working so hard to build, which has nothing to do with the glory of God, it will crumble someday. And you'll find that you forfeited your soul for the gain of the world. But here's the good news. You can hear Paul saying, though you've been unwilling to lay down your crown and scepter, Jesus willingly laid down his. Though you functionally substituted yourself for God, God in Christ has substituted himself for you. Jesus laid down his life so that those living for the kingdom of self might be brought into the kingdom of God. You can just hear Paul saying, if you're one of the many who profess Christianity, yet you've never truly been brought out of the darkness of functional deism, turn from that darkness, bend your knee this very day in glad submission to the one true king, Jesus. Maybe they'd, address the functional atheists in the crowd, those who say they believe in God but live as though there isn't a God. Those whose outlook in life is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Those living for the the next moment of fleeting happiness with no care of moral consequence as they claw after one endorphin-releasing experience after another, hoping that the next one will last a little longer than the previous one did. You can just hear Paul saying, I don't even have a category for this one, guys. Like, even the pagan worshipers of the Greek gods have some sense of reverence for the divine. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? This is Paul's language from Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You can just hear Paul saying, if you're you're one of the many who profess Christianity yet have no real evidence of the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit, turn to Jesus in faith and repentance and receive the gift of forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit today. You just hear Paul saying, know the greatest endorphin releasing happiness in the universe, happiness in Christ. Maybe they address the functional polytheists in the crowd polytheism being the belief in the worship of many gods, many deities, functional polytheists being those who worship their career, their kids, their comfort, those who would never confessionally say it, but functionally live lives that declare work is my God, family is my God, money is my God, and God is my God. You can just hear Paul saying, man, you remind me a lot of some friends that I made in a little town called Lustra." Your pantheon of God's certainly different, but a pantheon nonetheless. Most of the things you built altars to in your life are actually good things, but you've treated them as God things, and in that regard, you're functionally no different than the pagan worshipers, an idolater. How worn thin you must be from all the sacrifices you make in order to make all of your gods happy. After all, worship doesn't come without sacrifice. The beauty of the gospel, you can hear Paul saying, is that while we were yet worshiping our pantheon of gods, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, the one true object that is worthy of worship. You can just hear Paul saying, if you're one of the many who profess Christianity, yet have never truly known the joy of having your divided heart of stone replaced with a devoted heart of flesh, Turn from the darkness of pantheon worship today and fall at the feet of Jesus. Those are the kind of things I would expect the Apostle Paul to say in a context like ours. In every instance, pointing us to Jesus all along, declaring the hope of the unchanging gospel in ways ways that speak to our hearts uniquely. Coming back to this morning's passage Paul and Barnabas seek to make sense of this God of the gospel to a crowd of pagan worshipers. And we're told, verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. Right? The, this crowd can't seem to get past their preconceived notions of the divine, which is not altogether different from uh, the, the experience of many in our own day, right? Even among professing Christians, having determined for themselves what God is like, not on the basis of who he has actually revealed himself to be. A genie in a bottle whose job it is to grant our wishes. A divine Santa Claus who's up there making a naughty and nice list. An angry old man just waiting to zap us with lightning bolts at the first sign of failure. An absentee landlord who we could really use his help in a pinch, but he seems to be off the premises. A divine Jerry Maguire who's incomplete without us. And we could just keep going and going and going, right? We all have this propensity to remake God in our own image, to treat our preconceived notions as the supreme authority on who he is, on what he's like. This is a this is a Romans one moment for the people of Lustra, exchanging the truth about the living God of creation for, for a lie. Worshiping and serving the creatures, Paul and Barnabas, rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Verse 19 tells us, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Right? Talk about commitment, right? We've seen it. Before, in the religious leaders, the Apostle Paul himself leaving Jerusalem to go to Damascus to drag Christians by the hair and bring them back to the city of Jerusalem to imprison them, perhaps even kill them. Here you see a crowd of unbelieving Jews traveling from Antioch and Iconium, many of them the better part of a 100 miles in order to try to stop the Christian movement. They managed to stone Paul, which he tells us about elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 11.25. Three times I was beaten with rods, Paul says. Once I was stoned. I would imagine he's talking about Lustra there. It's fascinating to think that, that these crowds so quickly shift from worshiping Paul to seeking his death. Sound familiar? It's not unlike Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, hearing the crowd shout, Hosanna in the highest, only to shout, crucify him, days later, people and things that we idolize are oftentimes the very people and things that we end up demonizing. They manage to to bloody and bruise Paul so badly that everyone thinks he's dead, but God's not done with him yet. He says in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 and 11, as he writes, Timothy, he says, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me, here it is, at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Paul's quick to give God the glory. It's only by the grace of God that Paul can say elsewhere, Second Corinthians 4, verses eight and nine, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. By God's grace, Paul lives to see another day. So that we're told in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city, that is the city of Derby, and it made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Let me just stop here for a second. Let me come back to this map. Let me point out something here. If you look up there and you see the city of Derby, if you can make out the the letters where the blue arrow ends, I want you to look just southeast of that to the beginning of that journey. How easy that would have been to just keep going east, Right? You see, Tarsus, that's Paul's hometown. I can go get a home-cooked meal. I can cruise my way through the panhandle and enjoy the beach for a few days and make my way back to Antioch. That would have been the easy route. But that's not what we see the Apostle Paul and his team doing because they don't just believe in planting churches, but also strengthening, encouraging, and stabilizing churches. I love what Timothy Dwight once said, former minister, president of Yale In talking about the church, he says, for her, the church, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. That sounds very different than this compartmentalized thing of participating in some religious activities for a few hours every week, does it not? Paul and Barnabas take the more treacherous path so that they might encourage these brothers and sisters to persevere in the faith so that they might appoint spirit-filled men of wisdom and humility to shepherd the flock, so that they might ensure that these new believers understand that suffering is part of the Christian life. Think about this for a second. Can you imagine sitting at the feet of the bludgeoned apostle Paul and hearing him say, it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. You talk about putting steel in the spine of the souls of God's people, that'll do it. If someone told you that becoming a Christian would make all of your problems go away, whoever told you that was a big fat liar. That's just not true. Christianity is not a follow Jesus and all your problems will disappear worldview. Until we die or Jesus returns, whichever comes first, every one of us in this room will experience sorrow Paul said it himself, Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our Spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow co heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Cross centered life is not a life absent of suffering. Here's some really good news. We were talking about this even this week as a staff. As a Christian, you can be sure that God is working all things, even your suffering, even your affliction for good. I'll give you some examples. He's giving you a ministry through your suffering, an opportunity to come alongside others facing similar struggles with sympathy, with comfort, with encouragement that you wouldn't have looking from the outside in on those situations, He's giving you a greater eternal perspective as you find yourself increasingly more so longing for Jesus to return to do away with suffering once and for all. He's freeing you from the empty pursuit of self-glory as he uses your suffering to humble you and remind you of your deep dependence and desperation for him. And ultimately, he's putting the gospel on display through your suffering. His power made perfect in your weakness. The light of Christ. Declared sufficient by you in your darkest nights of the soul. Christian, hear me. I've said this before. God will not waste a single drop of your suffering. He won't. He will use it for his greatest glory, and he will use it for your greatest joy and good. Acts chapter 14 closes. Verse 24 Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adalia. And from there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Here we come to the end of Paul and Barnabas' Barnabas's first missionary journey, the famous first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Can you imagine what that ministry spotlighting moment must have been like for the gathered church in Antioch as these men shared the highlights of their incredible journey with their sending church? Hey, let me tell you about this guy, Sergius Paulus, the most noble official on the island of Cyprus who became a Christian along with his entire family. Let me tell you about this guy named Elymas. and and the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome demonic oppression. Let let me tell you about the gospel being planted and churches being birthed throughout the entire province of Galatia. Let let me tell you about the sicknesses. Let me tell you about the danger from rivers and robbers and the sleepless nights and my near-death experience. And let me tell you that in all of it, Jesus Christ is worth it. And one of the most simple Yet, profound statements that I read this week, John Stott, in his commentary, he said this about these last few verses of chapter 14. The grace had come from him, from God, the glory must go to him. Going back to last week, in what ways have you experienced the riches of God's grace? Tell as many people as will listen, whoever will give you a hearing, so that in response to the grace having come from him, the glory might go to him.